The Sheen Center presents Sheen Talks, the art of controversy, moderated by Gloria Purvis. Join us at the Sheen Center on November 15th at 7 p.m. for Communion Wars. Bringing together guests of differing views, Sheen Talks, the art of controversy, leads with civility, inclusiveness, and a willingness to listen. For tickets and information, visit sheencenter.org. Use code AMERICA to save $5 on tickets. Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Chris Kellerman, SJ. Chris is a Jesuit and serves as Assistant for Justice and Ecology of the Central and Southern Province of the Jesuits. I wanted to talk to Chris because he has a book out called All Oppressions Shall Cease, A History of Slavery, Abolitionism, and the Catholic Church. And the book's pretty heavy. And we talk about some of the heavier parts of the book during this conversation. I mean, it really made me start to think about our view of saints. And somehow when we think of saints, we think they're right on everything and they are perfect, but only God is perfect. And I think these saints realize that and would agree with that too, even though reading about their errors in something so fundamental to human dignity can be disconcerting. It can make you question, but it shouldn't make you question the truths of the faith. It shouldn't make you question the existence of God, although sometimes that could be the temptation. And so with all these things that I was experiencing and thinking about when I read the book, I thought, gosh, we got to get Chris on. So that's why I wanted to have him on the show, because I'm sure some of you are going to go out and read the book. And being able to go back and listen to Chris, I think just makes it all the more powerful, makes the material something to meditate on. And even when we do our own interior examination of ourselves, that we recognize God's grace operating in us and that conversion and recognition of the truth is a lifelong work. And maybe we're not there yet, but we can get there. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. You may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast, and that's okay. That's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by following us wherever you listen and also by getting a digital subscription to America. How do you get a digital subscription to America? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Chris Kellerman is up next. Chris, welcome to the show. So happy you're with me. Thank you so much, Gloria. It's awesome to be here. Well, I love your book, All Oppressions Shall Cease, A History of Slavery, Abolitionism, and the Catholic Church. A wonderful read. Thank you so much. Gosh, I, I mean, it's 
it makes it really clear that even us, those of us acquainted with the subject of slavery really probably know in comparison to you very little about the Atlantic slave trade, particularly with respect to the Catholic Church. For example, you know, I've made this claim. Many claim that the Catholic Church was always against slavery, or at least implicitly. Well, I didn't say they were always, but, you know, thinking of some of the things that the Holy Fathers have said that the church was against it. Others claim that the church once accepted some forms of slavery, but not chattel slavery. Mm -hmm. Still some say that the church was complicit in slavery, and especially with the Atlantic slave trade. But your new book, All Oppression South Seas, meticulously shows that these claims are not the whole story. I have to say, I know you talk a little bit about, to me, it seems like this was a lifelong pursuit of truth, but could you tell us a little bit about that one thing that you were like, that is an unsatisfying answer that made you say, I want to go search, keep searching. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. I definitely, everything that you said about the different things that you've heard people say, the different things you believe, I've been there on all of those things. When I was growing up and in elementary school, I was interested in this because I heard in school that we were a Christian nation and I was a good Catholic boy. <laughs> but I, I remember hearing about slavery and learning about it in school and going, gosh, why? How, that seems so evil. Why did we let that happen? And, and as I was you know, exploring my faith more as I got older, I would hear people say things like, well, yeah, it is true that there were Catholics in the United States who were slaveholders. But they were disobeying the church's teaching, and we know that sin exists in history, and therefore the end. But that just didn't make sense to me that, like, you know, we we had these bishops and these priests that held slaves, that held them slaves. Why didn't they get in trouble for it? Mm, <laughs> Why didn't the right. Vatican, you know, excommunicate all of them? And, and that's sort right. of what led me to start looking more into this. And boy, did you. <laughs> you really looked into it. And I mean, I think we should probably start with people's first... I would say maybe exposure to slavery, at least in a faith perspective, by looking at the Bible. Right. And I know people ask this question, so I'm just going to ask, does the Bible actually condemn slavery? Ooh. So that's, <laughs> I think that the best answer I could give to that is that in history, at least, it depends on who you ask. If we look at the Bible from a purely historical, critical standpoint, so in other words, using the kind of biblical scholarship tools where all we're trying to figure out is what the original author intended in their context. It's really hard to make the case that the Bible is the biblical authors were abolitionists. But we see through the years and through the centuries, there were some Christians who argued that the Bible was very anti-slavery. And in a sense today, the church definitely says that Christianity is very anti-slavery, and it quotes passages from the Bible. So it's a really difficult question. I think it's a difficult question, too. And I also think people make distinctions about the kind of slavery and the purpose of slavery that the Jewish people experienced. It was mm -hmm. for a particular reason and not to be confused with chattel slavery. What would you say to that? Yeah, so that's another thing that's interesting, that in the Old Testament, we see the Jewish people in Egypt pushed into forced slavery. And when they leave, when they're liberated by God through Moses, and they receive the law, mm -hmm. the law has regulations about slavery in it. And what we really see there is kind of two sets of laws. One for their fellow Jews, mm -hmm. which is, it basically says that 
their fellow Jews, if they go into a place of forced labor, Mm -hmm. for example, they can't pay a debt. And so they sell themselves to someone else to pay that debt. The law says they aren't really slaves. Don't treat them like slaves. Treat them well. And in fact, they can only be enslaved for six years. And then on the seventh year, they need to be freed. Mm. On the other hand, for foreigners, it does seem that they are treated as chattel because it says that you may buy them. Mm -hmm. It tells the Hebrew people they may buy slaves from other nations and that they may keep them forever as a heritage and pass them on just to Mm. maybe give a definition to everybody. When we say chattel slavery, that word chattel just means movable property. So as opposed to like land that can't move, being a chattel means I can sell you to somebody else and you can move. And it does seem that when it came to foreign slaves that the Hebrew people were allowed to keep them as chattel and treat them like slaves. So that's Old Testament. How about in the New Testament, how slavery was addressed within the New Testament? Right. In the New Testament, well, we're in a different era because we're in the Roman Empire. So naturally, since the books of the Bible are written by Jews who believe in Christ, Jewish Christians, they want to follow the law of Moses. And they're also in this whole Roman legal system. Mm-hmm. or they're following the law of Moses to the extent that at that time they thought that they were bound to, you know, that kind right, of a right. thing. <laughs> and so slavery is alluded to, it shows up, but not any way that Jesus really condemns it or praises it. You know, it comes up in parables. It comes up when the centurion who has a slave asks Jesus to heal him. But Jesus doesn't really seem to comment on the morality of it. However, in the letters of St. Paul and of St. Peter, We have these sections called the household codes, which is where I think probably Catholics are most familiar with them for the way that it talks about the relationship between the husband and wife and children in Mm -hmm. the home. But Mm -hmm. at the end of it, it always talks about slaves, obey your masters. And so what it seems like that we know from those is that early Christians had enslaved people in their home and that those enslaved people were told to obey their masters as they would obey Christ. It's a hard thing to swallow. Yeah. I mean, I keep thinking about, boy, we had jacked up human relationships like in the worst way from the very (laughs) earliest times and we're still trying to get it together. Yeah. So, you know, you're thinking about the early church developed during the Roman Empire. So these kinds of customs and things regarding slavery in the Roman Empire would be affecting the early church, the Christians, And I'm thinking about one of the pillars of, at least theological pillars of Western civilization, St. Augustine of Hippo. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, what were his views about really the moral permissibility of certain forms of slavery? Absolutely. Um, You know, of the church fathers, in a way, St. Augustine was kind of the most (laughs) pro-slavery of all of them. And what I mean by that is that You know, all the church fathers, they have this duty in a way of passing down the faith and interpreting it for new generations, you know, and and passing down this tradition. And they're trying to delve into these issues a lot more. And what we see with Augustine is he's trying to explain, how is it, like Augustine says, clearly there's not slavery in the Garden of Eden, Mm -hmm. right? Like that is clearly not what humans were made for because humans are made in the image and likeness of God, and we were given dominion over all the creatures of the earth, not each other. So Mm -hmm. why is it that we have slavery now? And Augustine said, well, 
He looked at it from both kind of a theological perspective and a natural law perspective. From the natural law perspective, he said, nature desires that we keep order. And so slavery is used in order to keep order in a household and to keep order in a country. His explanation for the theological reason is that this is a punishment for sin. And Augustine's clear that he means that this is one of the ways that God punishes individual humans for their sins is through Hmm. them becoming enslaved. Now, he doesn't mean that if you're a slaveholder, you're holy, and that if you're enslaved, you're a sinner. It's just like one of the ways that God punishes people is through they find themselves in slavery. So to Augustine, slavery was something that was acceptable because it was a way that God punished people. It was a way that God kept justice in Mm -hmm. the world. And that included needing to whip slaves at time to keep order in the house. I mean, he defends that action. I guess, you know, hearing that, how should our listeners then grapple with, you know, what other things St. Augustine has said? How do we see that? I mean, I know you're giving the um, a little bit more nuance to it, but because, you know, at least to modern ears, we find slavery so abhorrent and we're so familiar with the kinds of abuses that could happen within slavery. Mm-hmm. How do we digest that? Yeah, St. Augustine's human. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, this is something that throughout my own research in this book that I thought about all the time because I love St. Augustine. I mean, I love the confessions. They have moved my heart in a multitude of ways. Mm -hmm. And so this was really, I found this really bizarre to read that he said this. And part of what made it even tougher for me is that there's another church father during that time, St. Gregory of Nyssa, Mm -hmm. who was fully... 100% an abolitionist and thought that slavery was evil. Mm. And so that makes it even trickier, I think, with like, ooh, geez, you know, you can't really say like, nobody thought it was wrong back then because we have a saint in our church who thought it was wrong back then at the same time as Augustine. So that's, yeah, that's a tricky thing to to deal with. What are Augustinian scholars, theologians, what do they say about this? Well, from what I have seen before where I've talked to scholars of Augustine on this, They've just kind of said like, yeah, that's right. (laughs) He did say that. And thankfully, we don't believe that as a church today. And I think that that's one thing to remember Mm. is that in any of the theologians that we read in the church's history, you know, not everything that they write is going to be perfect. Not everything that they write is going to be, you know, spot on. Right. We're human. We make errors. And that includes some of our greatest theologians as well. They made errors, too. So we talked about St. Augustine, who's a doctor of the church. And I want to move to another doctor of the church, a leading theologian, St. Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. So what were his views on slavery? Yeah. Thomas Aquinas writes about slavery in little places, uh, little places here and there kind of scattered. So we don't have from Aquinas, you know, Aquinas is known, right, for these great treatises, these great questions. We don't have a big treatise on slavery from him or like, you know, 10 questions in the Summa about slavery or anything like that. They're in little spots. But what we see from Aquinas is that he basically accepts the idea of slavery. He accepts that a prisoner of war can be sold as a slave and that these prisoners of war, when they have children, so when the women have children, that their children will also become slaves. 
So this goes all the way back to Rome, and it's in the Old Testament as well, this idea that the child of an enslaved woman will also be enslaved. And Aquinas kind of defends that and, and has this idea of why that should happen. And then, you know, he does write that enslaved people, he says the owner, the slaveholder, that he owns their body, right. but he doesn't own their soul. And he doesn't own what he says is super added to nature. So in other words, he can't like say, all right, you aren't going to eat ever, right? Like he's got to take mm -hmm. care of his enslaved person so that the person can live. But, you know, the person is chattel. The person is movable property. You know, one of the things is I'm listening to this. Gosh, I'm thinking, boy, the fall was awful for humanity. Yeah. <laughs> the fall was yeah. awful for humanity. And it also you know, is making me think about what should we be learning from this, that we even see these great minds, these holy people didn't necessarily have the full light on this particular aspect of human relationships. Yeah. And so what can we, who, at least I think we, we have a more light on this and understand the horrors and evil, what good is to come from our knowledge of looking back at this? What does this teach us for today? Yeah, it is sad. And, and this is something that I really struggled with when I was doing this research, because I, you know, like I said about Augustine, even more so, I'm a fan of Aquinas. I mean, he's my go-to theologian. <laughs> um, <laughs> and in fact, at the end of my book, I give kind of a theological reflection on, on reparations and justice. And I depend on Aquinas a lot in it because I think that he was a genius. Mm -hmm. I think he was wrong on this area and that Scotus was right. And this is something I really come to believe that, that just because we can point to some place where a theologian gets something wrong, like even somebody as great as Aquinas, you know, that doesn't then mean, well, throw it all out, throw right. out the Summa, because frankly, you know, over time, the church has grown to see that Aquinas was wrong on that. And we've rejected that. And so the truth eventually came through. But I do think that you're right, that there's some extent to which we need to say to ourselves, okay. What does this mean about our past? What does it mean about what it led to? And, you know, what does it mean about the way that we even look at theology today and how theology comes about? So there is some reconciliation that is, I think, needed there. Reconciliation. But I love how you say, look, don't throw everything out. Take what is true and good and keep it. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Because it does seem like we sort of have like a, sometimes at least I see that there's sort of like this purity politic, like if any piece of it's wrong, all of it's terrible and I don't know if I can believe in God anymore or, you know, yeah. just go to like the way, way extreme. And I was like, why don't we think about our own lives and our own lives mm -hmm. where we're right in some areas and wrong in some areas. And when you realize you're wrong in that area, what do we do? We're supposed to try to repent and do better. That's right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I love how you say that because yeah, I make mistakes too. And we all make mistakes and we all... Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we have to remember, too, that like our sins sometimes have like really horrible impacts on people, yeah. you know, and, and and so I can't be like, oh, man, let's throw out Aquinas. What a sinner. It's like, no, right. he made mistakes, too. He has errors, too, just like I have errors in my own life. We're all on this journey trying to go to truth together. And there's so much in his work that is so inspiring and so good. Mm -hmm. This is just one area where another theologian of the day, Scotus, really had the right one, you know, had the right answer. 
Well, and it also made me think about, you know what? None of these saints are God. <laughs> That's right. Only God's got the whole truth, the beauty, the goodness, you know, completely unsoiled, unstained. And so maybe there's something to that as well, that even the angelic doctors, they call him with his wonderful writings in these other areas, just didn't have this part right. And why should we assume that everything he would have be right on everything because he isn't God? That's right. Are you seeing a pattern for the way humans have made mistakes in history? Do you see any pattern there? Or? Well, I don't know about that. I guess what I would say is that, you know, when we get especially to the era of the Atlantic slave trade, mm. which was really the most colossal movement of enslaved people in history, just this enormous enterprise, you know, we have this theology in place, this canon law in place that is saying that slavery is acceptable. And there's definitely part of me that's got to think like, geez, why couldn't have we have gone with SCOTUS <laughs> and right. Nyssa or Smaragdus at that time? And I, I don't quite know. I mean, I, I can't judge the hearts of the popes that did this or, right. or the theologians that wrote that. But I do know that there was a real desire for connection in different eras between past theology. And there was this real desire, especially in the Middle Ages, to make our theology fit harmoniously with the writings of Rome and the writings of, you know, the Greek philosophers like Aristotle. And so sometimes there was a little bit of a fear, I think, of bucking the trend because Scotus would give public lectures in different places. I imagine that when he got to that part or when Gregory of Nyssa was preaching to his congregation, you need to free your slaves, that it was like, whoa, what are these guys saying? You know, <laughs> right. um, yeah. and that, that took a lot of courage. I mean, I, I would think. Yeah, I would think it took a lot of courage for an up because I, I could imagine people getting um straight up mobbed by the congregation <laughs> yeah. and killed, you know, just, yeah, I would say for sure. One of the things that you mentioned at the Atlantic slave trade, but one of the things you talk about is we need to understand things in context as well. Right. So for the purpose of today's discussion, how would you help our listeners understand what the Atlantic slave trade is? Right. Thank you. That's a very important question. So... The first thing that we need to know is that before the Atlantic slave trade, what we sometimes call it the African slave trade, I'd like to say the Atlantic slave trade better because it shows that, well, it involved a lot of nations, continents, yeah. not just Africa. But the Atlantic slave trade begins, I would say, in about 1441, which is the first time that Portugal, who begins exploring Africa, the islands off of Western Africa, and then moves to the coast itself and brings back enslaved captives. That's when that begins, is 1441. Before that time, there are already enslaved people in Europe, in Christian Europe, and that includes Africans. There's enslaved Africans, there's enslaved Eastern Europeans. So this movement of Portugal, when they're trying to expand their empire and they're trying to continue their fight from the Crusades against Islam, Mm -hmm. They begin raiding for slaves, which basically means they show up on an island or they show up on the coast and they start kidnapping people. And they begin buying enslaved people who are already enslaved in Africa by African merchants. So that's how it begins in 1441. And really, if we think about the end of the African slave trade. It's in the late 19th century. And during those 400 plus years, 12.5 million people 
Mm. were placed on ships and transported across the Atlantic Ocean, and only 10.7 million of those disembarked because, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions died on the ships or at times even tragically committed suicide because it was such a, a horrible and scary experience. We'll be right back. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So we hear a lot of distinctions between ancient slavery and Atlantic slave trade, one of which that I have heard is people in ancient slavery, they weren't enslaved because of hatred of their race, like you had in the Atlantic slave trade. What do you think about that? It becomes accurate at a certain point, I would say. So when the trade begins, and this is, again, one of the really painful aspects of our history as a church, Mm -hmm. the popes are approving of what Portugal is doing. And one pope in particular, Nicholas V, writes these two bulls saying that the kingdom of Portugal basically can lay claim to Africa and mm-hmm. that anywhere anywhere that they find non-Christians, because there were Christians in Africa, Nicholas says you can conquer them, you can take everything that they own, and you can reduce them to perpetual slavery. And he even writes in his second bull that Portugal has started doing this and mm-hmm. has brought enslaved people back. Now, the thing about these bulls, I mean, they're really quite horrifying to read. And and one of the arguments I make in the book is that the bulls were way outside the theological mainstream of the time. I think that Thomas Aquinas would have thought they were horrifying, Mm -hmm, um, that you could mm -hmm. just show up and start kidnapping people. But this is what Nicholas says. (laughs) He doesn't mention anything about race, because that's not really what's going on at this point. What's happening is that these first enslaved people that they're capturing, we hear that they're of all different colors. There's light-skinned Muslims, Mm -hmm. and then there are, you know, very dark-skinned ones as well. It's not really about race at that point. What happens is that about 100 years later, we have enslaved peoples in the Americas that are fighting back. They're running away. They're having uprisings and that kind of thing. And there's a Dominican friar who eventually Mm -hmm. is a bishop named Bartolome de las Casas. Yes. He, along with some other theologians, start to realize, oh, these people are being enslaved unjustly. Mm -hmm. It's kind of soon after that that some theologians who want to continue the slave trade start coming up with these racist arguments in order to try to justify the injustices. And that, I would say, is where the slave trade and the ideology behind it takes a really racist turn and starts making it seem like the standards that we apply to Africans, to black people, should be lower than the standards that we apply normally when we're talking about slavery. And when we talk about Bartolome de las Casas, one of the things that I do remember reading about him is that he he had an, an evolution, if you will, in terms of enslavement of Africans, right? So he was very firm about that indigenous people should not be enslaved and kind of not wasn't quite there yet 
on the Africans, but then mm-hmm. eventually got there. There's just something about that to me that we can come to maybe a more robust defense of the truth of the human person. Maybe it doesn't come all at once, but we have a chance to be converted on the matter. One of the things I would say, Chris, is as I was reading the book, I kept thinking, gosh, the people that didn't have to experience slavery, sure, (laughs) you know, seemed kind of unaware, I guess, or unable to sympathize with or have compassion for the people kept in slavery. Like you might be outside of it, not subject to it, or you could see it, or maybe even you own slaves yourselves. But to me, that lack of human connection with the actual person and what they were suffering in slavery seemed to allow people to be able to talk about slavery in these big, highfalutin theological terms, but not really deal with the lived suffering of the enslaved. Absolutely right. You know, one of the theologians that I really think is central to the history is a Jesuit named Luis de Molina, who in the 16th century writes the first lengthy treatise on the African slave trade. Las Casas had written about it a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know, to sort of talk about his conversion when he sort of did this investigation into the trade and, and all of its injustices. And Molina, it's interesting, in order to investigate the trade, he reads these documents about it. And then he goes and he interviews the traders and the merchants. But he doesn't interview the enslaved, right? right? And in fact, part of his sort of justification for continuing to participate in the trade or sort of one of the moral rules that he gives is, well, look, don't trust what the slave tells you because they're going to lie and say they were kidnapped. (laughs) And it's like, oh my gosh. And so what does that set up? It sets up this dichotomy of don't believe black people. Yeah. Don't believe these slaves. And let's just remember, I mean, Molina is at a university in Europe. And there are enslaved people around him, but these aren't the people that he's talking to. While on the other hand, there were some priests in the New World who worked very closely with the enslaved and ministered to them and listened to their stories and realized that, oh my gosh, this is evil. This Atlantic slave trade is absolutely evil and we've got to stop it. And that came through knowing people and listening to them and sharing their stories. So we see the going to the peripheries, something (laughs) Pope Francis is telling people to do, going to the peripheries back then led to a revelation of the true evil of the Atlantic slave trade, of the experience of being enslaved. And as we talk about people who actually work with or spoke to or ministered to the enslaved, I can't help but think of St. Peter Claver. So, I mean, so, yeah. well, there's the, oh, he's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful view. And then there's the things he's actually said and done that might not sort of match up to the vision we have been given of St. Peter Claver. What are we to make of that? Yeah, that is a really, <laughs> that, that is a really tough one to talk about and to process. Peter Claver was a Jesuit who ministered to especially to enslaved Africans in Cartagena, in Colombia, in the first half of the 17th century. And he's very famous for calling himself the slave of the slaves, and that he would go and meet the slave ships as they arrived in Cartagena, 
and, you know, take care, bodily care of the people who had, you know, survived this horrifying journey across the ocean in, you know, amid disease and, and darkness and death. And he would take care of them and he would begin to catechize them and, and baptize them. Like you said, St. Peter Claver has been promoted really and, and was promoted from early on as being a, a very saintly man. And today, if you search around online about him, people say things like that he was against the slave trade and that he was, you know, a prophet of racial justice and he, you know, subverted the trade by his ministry. And unfortunately, none of that is true. St. Peter Claver actually participated in the Atlantic slave trade. He promoted a book that defended participation in it. He himself even gave money to Portuguese merchants and said, will you buy me some slaves that can serve as my interpreters when you go back to Africa? Because he was he was ministering to all these different people that had different languages. And so he literally directly participated in, this, in the trade. And we even more so have these uh, stories about him in Cartagena you know, using physical violence against them, mm-hmm. using kind of fear and shame to intimidate them. It's just a very different story than sort of the image that we have of St. Peter Claver today, especially because we know that there were people during, even before Claver, there were priests who were against the trade and who were speaking out against it. And we don't really know their names as well today, you know, to me, that really brought into view the fact that like St. Peter Claver was a Jesuit and he was a member yeah. of the Society of Jesus. And the Society of Jesus was one of the biggest defenders of the trade and one of the biggest Catholic participants. And so, you know, in a way, it's like, do we blame Peter Claver or do we blame his superiors that allowed right. him to do this and were in fact endorsing it? It's a really strange thing to consider. Well, let's consider something else that the strange and, and different in terms of our understanding of the truth versus what we think we know. Because yeah. I think Catholics often associate themselves with the abolition movement. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, really, there were very few Catholics involved in the abolition movement in the United States. And in fact, you note that virtually all the bishops frowned upon abolitionism, if not outright opposed the abolition movement. Can you explain why? Like, why would the bishops be like that? Yeah, you know, a lot of people have tried to figure that out of why the bishops were so anti-abolitionist. I think that all of the answers that are out there, they have some truth to them. Mm -hmm. One is that the bishops were trying to like show themselves as good Americans. And since the abolitionist movement in the 19th century was kind of seen as a radical movement, they didn't want to associate themselves with radicalism. They wanted to look like good Americans. Sometimes people will say, well, the abolitionists were really anti-Catholic. And because of that, the bishops didn't join them. Again, I think that those two answers, they have some truth to them. But the fact of the matter is, like, we have to remember that prior to this time, the church's theology and canon law, and many of its most prominent theologians were defending the trade. It would have been bucking the trend for the U.S. bishops to become abolitionists. It would have been bucking the Catholic trend for them to do so. It's interesting to me when you say, when people say, oh, they want to be more American, that being American is synonymous with being participants, supporters, enablers of the movement of slavery that's based on a lot of racist ideology. 
And I just think we we have to, in looking at the history of slavery and looking at our past, have to really grapple with the, I don't know, is the word I'm going to use, fruits of that evil, the poison of that evil, maybe, that still impacts us. But I hope that we have some hope about it. And to that end, I know it had to be super hard to do this research. It had to be challenging. I mean, to your faith, being a Catholic, being a Jesuit. So maybe we can end on the following, I think, consoling note. What has encouraged you the most in writing this book? Thank you so much for asking that question, because you're absolutely right. I mean, to be honest, there were some of this research, a lot of this research I was doing during the pandemic. And so Mm. there were nights where I couldn't sleep. There were nights where I was where I was weeping over what mm-hmm. I had read in these stories, especially the stories that you mentioned of, of sexual violence, which are just a horrifying. Mm-hmm. And a big thing that made this difficult for me was like, oh my gosh, my church, my church didn't speak out when it needed to, you know, when it could have, and it perpetuated so much suffering. And that was all really scary. But there's so many inspiring people in this story. I'm telling you, for every saint that that we find out was a slaveholder for every pope that we find out you know did something crazy there's mm-hmm. another person who was fighting against it like oh my absolute heroes now there were these black catholic confraternities in the 17th century that were in brazil and they were in portugal and they would gather together and they were able to see based on their catholic faith mm-hmm. that this was wrong I guess that the reason that I say that is that like, there's this temptation to think, oh my gosh, there's this terrible evil in Catholic history. Should I even be a Catholic? Is Catholicism completely rotten to the core? And it's like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Because we have proof that people as early as Gregory of Nyssa and as late as Martha Jane Tolton were able to, based on their Catholicism, say, this is not who we are. And they were able to envision this Catholicism that was against oppression. And that, in fact, became the official teaching of the church from Pope Leo XIII onward. And today we fight against human trafficking in our world. And so to me, there's a great sense of that hope that like, yeah, there was a change. And a lot of that change came through people speaking up and good Mm. Catholics speaking up and saying, based on my faith, I know this isn't right. It's given me great inspiration and great hope to know that the Holy Spirit was at work and the Holy Spirit's still at work in the world today. Amen. I think that's such a, to me, very comforting as well, that the truth was there. It's just not everybody was capable of seeing it, but there were some. Yeah. And so it makes me say, Lord, help me to see the truth more fully. Absolutely. (laughs) I pray that all the time that I'm like, Lord, if I'm on the wrong path, please let me see, you know? Indeed, Uh, Because we see that this is possible, that really good people were on the wrong side of the truth. So I have to ask everybody, if you can, get a copy of it, All Oppressions Shall Cease, A History of Slavery, Abolitionism, and the Catholic Church by Christopher J. Kellerman, S.J. Chris, thank you so much for joining me on the Gloria Purvis podcast. It was was wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much, Gloria. It was an honor to be here with you. And thank you for the work that you do in the church today to fight for racial justice and for the dignity of every human life. Thank you. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast. 
and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to click follow to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Oh, and do this. Could you leave us a review if you can? I would love to hear from you. And by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Maggie Van Dorn and it's engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time. <music>